Chapter 14 of A History of Astronomy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A History of Astronomy by Walter W. Bryant. Chapter 14 General Astronomy and Celestial Mechanics. As we come to more modern times, especially after Herschel's pioneer work had so greatly increased the number of astronomers, the biographical element becomes relatively of less importance, and it is necessary simply to follow in turn the development of the main branches of the subject, referring only incidentally to those whose labors are responsible for the development. Even so, it is not easy to separate every branch of astronomy, since, to give only one instance, the subjects of instruments of the sun and of spectroscopy are closely interwoven at several points. The difficulty is not a new one, and every attempt to evade it must be in the nature of a compromise. Following the main divisions of the International Catalogue of Scientific Literature, the first group demanding attention is the general literature, history, and bibliography of the science, but it will be sufficient for our present purpose to treat this division with considerable brevity. Textbooks abound in many languages, from Herschel's Outlines of Astronomy, which has been translated even into Chinese, to modern treatises, of which, whether in popular form or for the use of students, the number is very large. Those of Chambers and Flammarion, for instance, belonging more to the former category, while leading examples of the latter are due to Professors Chauvenet of St. Louis and Young of Princeton. The history of the science has by no means been neglected. The great work of Delambre, himself an astronomer, still remains a veritable treasure house, though for more modern research, the date of Delambre's last volume is 1821, Wolf's Geschichte der Astronomie must not be overlooked by the biographer, and the development of the science itself may be studied in parts of Houle's History of the Inductive Sciences, or with great wealth of detail in Professor Grant's History of Physical Astronomy. Besides these and many other treatises, the progress of astronomy has been reported regularly in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society, and in numerous other publications, the most important of which are, perhaps, Airy's report to the British Association in 1832, those of Professor Loomis in America, and of the Smithsonian and Kindred Institutions. We have already referred to the foundation of some of the journals or publications devoted to astronomy, and to the societies whose interest lies entirely with the science, and progress in that direction also has been very rapid since the middle of the last century. The German Astronomical Society was founded in 1860, that of France in 1887, the British Astronomical Association, which has colonial branches, in 1890, and though, owing to the distances, it has been found almost impossible to work a society for the United States, large sections of it are not unprovided with such advantages, as, for instance, the Astronomical Society of the Pacific, founded in 1887, while over the northern boundary flourishes the Astronomical Society of Canada. All these and many others, including local societies such as those of Liverpool, Leeds, and Montpellier, publish monthly journals or annual reports, and, in addition, there is an increasing number of more or less independent periodicals. The American Astronomical Journal was founded by Gold in 1851 
and though the civil war, followed by Gould's absence in the Argentine, caused a break of a quarter of a century, it revived in 1888 and is still in the front rank. The Bulletin Astronomique de France, under the aegis of the Paris Observatory, appeared first in 1884, six years after the first issue of The Observatory, which has always been closely associated with Greenwich, and which has practically superseded the Astronomical Register, 1864 to 1886. Another American journal, The Sidereal Messenger, founded in 1883, enlarged and renamed Astronomy and Astrophysics in 1892 on account of the great advances being made in spectroscopy, was succeeded by the Astrophysical Journal in 1895, the more popular part of it being continued from 1894 as Popular Astronomy. Another form of publication, the various series of bulletins and circulars of different observatories must also be noted. Among older series were Brunoff's Astronomical Notices from Ann Arbor and the Dun Echt and afterwards Edinburgh circulars from Lord Crawford's observatory, but the most important ones at the present day are those of the great American observatories, such as the Lick Observatory Bulletins, the Yerkes Observatory Bulletins, and the Harvard Observatory Circulars. Some of the publications in the above list are not altogether confined to astronomy, as in observatory publications, for instance. Space has often to be found for meteorology, but, on the other hand, large numbers of scientific journals find space for a certain amount of astronomy, either in the form of extracts from astronomical journals or occasionally in specially contributed articles. One other special set of annuals belongs also to this section, viz. the various national ephemerides, of which the most important are the Nautical Almanac, the Connaissance de Temps, the Berliner Astronomique Jahrbuch, and the Washington Ephemeris. Formerly, many important papers were included as appendices in some of these almanacs, notably the Connaissance de Temps, but the increasing facilities for publication elsewhere have practically put an end to the practice, nothing, for instance, of this character appearing in any more recent number of the Connaissance than 1878. The problems of spherical astronomy are of great antiquity, and as in this branch of the science the exact causes of the celestial motions were not of vital importance, not so much is left for modern research. Though advances in methods of computing are continually being made, principally in the direction of shortening labor, the theoretical determination of the latitude and longitude, the essential problem of nautical astronomy, has always been of great importance, and it is almost inconceivable that any advance of human knowledge will minimize the necessity for the study of this problem, though with the increasing reliability of chronometers, many of the older methods of determining longitude have ceased to have much practical value. It is just possible that some development of wireless telegraphy may enable a ship's position to be sent by return ethergram from the nearest land station, but in no other direction does there seem to be the slightest hope. The ordinary problems of the conversion of altitude and azimuth into right ascension and declination of the time of rising and setting of the sun, moon, or any other celestial body, have long ceased to present any new features. The corrections to reduce observations to the center of the earth 
and to allow for the effect of the Earth's various periodic motions, in fact to reduce to the center of the Sun, form parts of the same domain, and so also do the calculation of ephemerides, including eclipses, occultations, and what are called planetary phenomena, such as conjunctions of planets with each other, or with the moon or a conspicuous star, and eclipses, occultations, and transits of Jupiter's satellites. In some of these directions, advances have been made in the way of graphic or mechanical methods of computation. In others, the improvement lies rather in the more accurate discrimination between small quantities that may safely be ignored, and others which would produce cumulative errors. A new work on spherical astronomy by Professor Newcomb is typical of this form of economy of labor and is a notable contribution to the subject. Dynamical astronomy, as we have seen, is a much more recent product and may be said to have owed its birth to Newton and its vigorous development to the great continental mathematicians and physicists to whom reference has already been made. It is true that from time to time fresh or apparently fresh theories are produced, either to sweep away the remaining uncertainties caused by observed motions for which the Newtonian theory has hitherto failed to account, or to modify the law of gravitation itself in order to compromise with those discordances. The great historic instance is the motion of the perihelion of Mercury, an example of the first class of theories being the assumption of a resisting medium effective only within a comparatively small distance from the sun, an assumption which was supposed to be capable of simple test by means of Encke's comet, which also has a small perihelion distance. An example of the second class being a totally different assumption that the law of gravitation is not strictly true, there being a supposed small additional term depending upon an inverse power of the distance of a higher order than the square, so that it would have more effect near the sun. Neither of these assumptions can be said to have been justified by observation, and the slight discrepancy which called them forth still remains. But an investigation into the long and valuable series of Greenwich lunar observations which has quite recently been carried out by P. H. Cole at the Royal Observatory has caused it to be regarded as at all events possible that salvation may lie in a more accurate adjustment of the known facts without any gratuitous assumptions whatever. As to the mode of action of the universal force of gravitation, a time element has been sought as it seems incredible that the action should be instantaneous at all distances. Professor Whitaker, the newly elected royal astronomer for Ireland, has suggested an undulatory theory of gravitation based upon a solution in general terms of Laplace's fundamental equations, but physicists deny the validity of his explanation. In calculation of orbits from a limited number of observations, progress has been perhaps more quantitative than qualitative. The increasing number of new planets and comets affording plenty of scope for the diligent computer, while the theoretical advance has been to a large extent directed towards the restricted problem of three bodies in which the motions of two of the bodies are nearly commensurable. For instance, the case of minor planets whose mean motion is twice that of Jupiter. Much work has been done, especially in Germany in recent years, on the general theory of perturbations, 
and on various subsidiary problems that arise in the course of such investigations, but probably the most regular advance has been made in the lunar theory. At the beginning of the 19th century, the secular acceleration of the moon's mean motion had already been investigated by Laplace, and early in the century, his value for it was approximately confirmed by Damoiseau and Plana, and again before the middle of the century by Hansen. But soon afterwards, Adams took up the question and found an error which had had the effect of doubling the real value. Hansen, however, in his Lunar Tables, published in 1857, ignored Adams's result and used a slightly larger value than before. Delaunay, thereupon, attacked the question and confirmed Adams's smaller value, which was ultimately accepted. The older value, however, seemed to satisfy the records of ancient eclipses better than the new one, which, therefore, left something further to be accounted for. It is possible that Cowell's researches into the subject of ancient eclipses may supply the explanation, as his conclusions suggest that there is probably an unsuspected acceleration of the sun, i.e. of the Earth's mean motion also, and that, allowing for this, the inconsistency disappears. Airy worked for years on a numerical lunar theory using the long series of Greenwich observations, but was not himself satisfied with the work. Newcomb published corrections to Hansen's tables and contributed also to the theory. G. W. Hill, another American mathematician, attacked the whole lunar theory in a different manner, and also continued the work left unfinished by Delaunay. For his epoch-making researches, Hill was awarded the Astronomical Society's Gold Medal in 1887. Similar awards for lunar researches having been made to Damoiseau, Plana, Hansen, Delaunay, and Adams. The latest award in 1907 was also in connection with the same subject to Professor E. W. Brown, who has for many years been working at Haverford College on the lines laid down by G. W. Hill, evaluating coefficients for nearly 400 periodic terms, Euler used only 30, involving millions of figures, and checking every step by independent equations of verification, ensuring an accuracy probably far in advance of that of previous workers. His work is to be continued at Yale, and he hopes to complete the coefficients of all the inequalities amounting to a hundredth of a second of arc, and to construct new and more accurate lunar tables. Research on similar lines, into which we cannot enter in detail, has also been continued in planetary theory and in more accurately evaluating the more obscure inequalities due to their mutual action, and it is, as before hinted, in this direction that the ultimate vindication of the Newtonian theory may be found. Very valuable work has also been done, and is still being attempted, on the theoretical figure of celestial bodies. Professor Darwin in England and Poincaré in France have investigated such abstruse subjects as the effect of tidal friction in determining the birth and subsequent career of a satellite, and on the stability of various forms possible for a rotating mass of fluid such as has been conjectured to have been the original state of all planets. The weight of evidence in favor of the pear-shaped form having recently had an accession in consequence of earthquake investigations, 
coupled with the great preponderance of land north of the equator. The figure of comets has been another fruitful field for more or less speculative theory, much work being due to the late Russian Professor Bredekhein, whose interest in the subject is commemorated by a prize periodically awarded for cometary investigations similar to his own. In this connection, much has been made of the theory, generally attributed to Professor Arrhenius, of the repulsive action of light on small particles, small, that is to say, even in comparison with atoms, such as are supposed to form the tail of comets. This is also called the pressure due to radiation, and has been suggested that radium or radioactivity is the key to many of the riddles of the universe. Cosmogony itself has not been forgotten. Kant's cosmogony, or practically Laplace's nebular hypothesis, is not by any means alone in the field. Lockyer's meteoritic hypothesis substitutes for condensation from one nebula into a central body surrounded by revolving satellites, with or without their own companions, the alternative of a gradual building up of the system by successive collisions and interferences between swarms of meteors more or less pervading space. The most recent analysis of tidal action and the forces acting on swarms of particles have gradually given rise to a new hypothesis, to which the name of planetesimal has been given, one essential difference being that it does not start with an assumption, however plausible, as to what might have been the original condition of things, but reasons from analogy with a state which is exceedingly common, if not universal, in the nebulae, an aggregation of particles in the form of a spiral. In previous hypotheses, Saturn's ring has been regarded as a stage of development through and beyond which all the other satellites and planets in the solar system have already progressed. Professor Darwin and others have given a fairly conclusive denial to the possibility of a ring condensing at any other point than the center. The new cosmogony regards Saturn's ring as the necessary ultimate form of a satellite revolving too near its primary to retain stability under the enormous tidal action, and hence breaking up into particles scattered round its original orbit. In this direction and in others, notably the anomalous cases of the outermost planets and certain satellites, the weight of evidence has steadily accumulated in favor of the planetesimal hypothesis, a large share in the development of which has been taken by Americans, among whom the names of Moulton, Stockwell, and Chamberlain are conspicuous in this investigation. One phase of the subject of the universe and stellar systems is the ever-recurring question of a medium, or ether of some kind, pervading the spaces between the celestial bodies. It has been argued that if space is limitless and stellar systems scattered in every part of it, it might be expected that in every direction some star would lie, and the aggregate effect of so many infinitesimal points would be a continuous lighting up of the whole sky. Since this is demonstrably not the case, it has been suggested that either space, or at any rate interstellar space, is not limitless, or else that the hypothetical ether, does act as an absorbent at vast distances, 
and practically extinguishes the light of every star fainter than a certain limit. There is not much to be said on this subject, to which, however, we may recur later on. Another matter which does not strictly come in this connection, perhaps, is the motion of the solar system in space. Since Herschel's time, many investigators have attacked this problem in more than one direction, using various material. It was once regarded as almost an axiom that faint stars were more distant than bright ones, but a very little thought shows that this is only another way of saying that all stars are actually of equal brightness, which is, in the first place, hopelessly improbable, and, in the second place, absolutely contrary to observed fact. The history of the investigation is a capital instance of the epoch-making results that can arise from the careful pursuit of a definite object even upon what may be termed false lines. Herschel's endeavors on the above erroneous assumption to determine the actual motion of a bright star or of the solar system with respect to the bright star or the distance of the star by a series of measures of direction and distance of a neighboring faint star revealed in many cases an actual motion of one star relative to the other and laid the foundation of double star astronomy. He did nevertheless find sufficient evidence of systematic proper motions to assign a position to the solar apex or point in the heavens towards which the solar system appears to be moving but later researches have considerably modified his result. It may be stated, with sufficient accuracy for our purpose, that the solar apex is, not far, from the direction of the bright star Vega in the constellation of Lyra, but a few remarks are necessary as to the uncertainties of the problem. The so-called proper motion of a star is a very small quantity, and is made up of the apparent effect of the real motion of the solar system and of the actual motion of the star itself. One or both of these in certain directions will be zero, but in general both are present, and so, however many stars are taken and however great the accuracy of the measures, there must be a slight want of determinateness in the result as the number of unknown quantities is always one more than the number of equations. However, since it is exceedingly probable that the motions of the stars, whether systematic or arbitrary, will tend to balance each other when a large number is taken in all parts of the sky, there appears an obvious way out of the difficulty. We are now face to face with another, for the number of stars whose proper motions can be regarded as approximately known is not large, nor are they evenly distributed. If, in order to increase the numbers, we include very small proper motions, then the probable error of the determinations becomes relatively too large for any confidence to be placed in the result. Different investigators have chosen different modes of compromise with these conditions. And the net result has been that according as the principle of selection varies, so will the apparent position of the solar apex. Bright stars give one value and faint stars give another. Stars of one type, so far as revealed by the spectroscope, give one result, stars of another type a different one. 
The stars which have the largest proper motions have usually the largest parallax on the whole, so that, being relatively much nearer, the effect of their actual motion is greater, the only actual gain being in the relatively less importance of errors of observation. Attempts have been made, especially by Professor Kaptein of Groningen, to determine the result by taking different regions of the sky each as a whole, but there is much the same uncertainty about the final figures, so much so that it has been suggested, with some plausibility, that there are at least two systems in the universe moving in different ways, and that the problem cannot approach solution until these can be separated. It is in this direction that much is hoped from the spectroscopic method, on the rather arbitrary assumption, that stars of one type are more likely to belong to one system. End of chapter 14, read by Maria James.